Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Subhatai Ahmed. He is the CEO of Numenta, and Numenta is studying neuroscience to understand how the brain works, and then, then apply those understandings of how the brain works to designing practical AI systems. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. Excited to be talk to you about this. So uh, the first question is not maybe an obvious one, but uh, what is the relationship, if any, between a neural network and our internal neural networks? So, so an AI neural network and our internal AI network, are they actually similar in any respect or are they not? Okay, this is a, that's a very deep question, actually. It's, it sounds simple, but it's, it's pretty deep. Um, so, you know, neural networks originally, artificial neural networks, let's call it that, were originally inspired by you know, initial understandings of how the brain works from neuroscience. So, uh, you know, back in the 40s, you know, Donald Hebb started to learn about how neurons actually make connections and learn. And that there was sort of a very simplified model of what a neuron is. And so today's AI systems and deep learning systems still use a very simplified model of mm -hmm. what a neuron is and how it connects. So, you know, what we've learned in the neuroscience is it's vastly more complicated than that. So, you know, the, the answer is the, you know, the, today's neural networks include a small subset of what brains actually do, uh, but they don't include the full complexity of, of what brain, brains do. And we can go into that for a long time if you want. Yeah, I would love to. So the first question that comes to mind is that given this new understanding of neuro, neuroscience and the, the complex nature of the brain, uh, how is that influencing, if at all, the development, like it, the real question I'm asking is, do we actually need to design artificial um, neural networks according to how the brain works? Or is it just kind of like an idea that we had in the 1940s that doesn't really make sense? Like has this understanding of how the brain really works really influenced co uh, contemporary uh, machine learning? Yeah, there's been a, a couple of points in history where the, uh, you know discoveries from neuroscience have had a pretty big impact in, in deep learning. So, you know, I mentioned Donald Hebb's uh, initial idea of how neurons actually learn. So that actually influenced the first neural network models and influenced, uh, you know, today's backpropagation algorithm, um, mm. uh, you know, back that was designed back in the 80s. So mm. there was that kind of influence. There was um, in the 50s, um, uh, Hubel and Weasel, uh, you know, they got the Nobel Prize for understanding how neurons actually learn features from the visual world and how you know that where the lowest levels of the neuron they they learn what's called edge detectors you know simple oriented edge detectors and so on and then at higher levels they learn increasingly more abstract features you know so corners and shapes and then eventually objects so that finding um, inspired convolutional neural networks uh, which are still very, uh, you know, used in in today's deep learning systems. There's also been a lot of back and forth in neuroscience and AI in the context of reinforcement learning. There's a very rich history of interactions between them. So those are kind of three examples of where there's been an impact. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the discoveries that have been made in neuroscience, and there've been some pretty amazing ones in the last 30 to 40 years, those have not made their way into deep learning systems yet. Mm -hmm. And we certainly think there's huge potential there. Um, the deep learning needs to incorporate some of those principles in order to really take uh, AI to the next level. Interesting. So I guess the next question is what doesn't what about machines and the way that they work? What doesn't actually have anything to do with neural neuroscience or how the way the brains work? Like how is a neural, uh, sorry, how is a machine uh, like totally different? How does it not apply? Yeah, so um, one of the things that have happened in deep learning is uh, sort of the advent of GPUs and people have been um, constructing their networks to take more efficient, you know, uh, be able to run their stuff on GPUs more efficiently. 
and as a result, GPUs have gotten bigger and bigger. And there's been sort of um, this vicious cycle where, you know, as GPUs get more powerful, these deep learning networks get more, you know, larger and larger. People are throwing more and more data at it, more compute at it, and it's an extremely brute force way of doing things. It's these these systems today are massive. They're trained on so much data. It's 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 crazy. They use up huge amounts of power and energy. That's completely different from how the brain works. The brain is very, very efficient in what it does. So your brain and my brain, for example, uses uh, something like 20 watts of power, whereas, whereas you know, deep learning systems use sort of cities worth of uh, power you know, in running inference and, and training and so on. Uh, so that's you know, one area where things are pretty different today. Um, another big difference is that in uh, artificial AI systems, there's a training mode and an inference mode. So, you know, these networks are trained in the lab by deep learning researchers. So you throw all this data in, you run back propagation and you just train these systems. And when you deploy them, they actually don't learn anymore, they're fixed. So there's a distinct training phase and an inference phase. That is completely different from brains. Uh, you and I are constantly learning, you know, we're gonna learn in this podcast together. Um, and there is no distinction between training and inference, every single, time we get inputs, we're constantly learning. Um, and as a result, we're able to kind of update ourselves and, and, and learn continuously. If you use ChatGPT at all, for example, you'll see for quite a while, it'll say, oh, you know, as of my last training of 2021, this is kind of what I know. Well, even OpenAI and Microsoft, with the billions of dollars they put in, they have not been able to update the network. It's still like three years old or two years old at this point. And do you think um, that's so there's a, a couple of the differences? There, there's more differences, but those are some of the those are the big ones. Do you think yeah, there's? Yeah. Uh, do you think that like? Do you think it's a problem with the algorithm that we can't give the algorithm long-term memory? Like, because that's the that's the key thing is long-term memory. And for us, I guess the long-term memory comes from that inference and training process that's all happening all at once and having to do with emotions. So that the more emotional a lesson, the deeper it, it gets memorized. So, like, what's the deal? Why is it? Is it something with a with the algorithm itself? Is it fixable or do we need to develop a whole new algorithm on it? Yeah, so I think the algorithm is part of the problem. The other problem is just how these networks are structured as well and, and kind of going back to fundamentally what is a neuron itself? What does a neuron do? And we can get to that in a second, but algorithmically what's going on with backpropagation is it's essentially um, a statistical system. It's trying to um, you know, get the average error and the average mistakes as low as possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it's doing. And, and you know, it, it's trained on billions and billions of data points or trillions of data points in the context of uh, today's GPT networks. And it's trying to get the average error uh, as low as possible. Whereas humans, it's, it's quite different. You know, we're constantly learning, like I said, and we're, uh, you know, in concepts of importance, you know, what's important, uh, using our knowledge of the world to impact uh, you know, how learning happens, all of those are, it's a much more structured form of learning in humans. Uh, whereas in deep networks today, it's very much a statistical uh, system. So interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we got the statistical system. Let's go into the how a neuron works. So what does yeah. a neuron do? Yeah, so <laughs> um, this is, you know, one of the core questions in neuroscience for decades now. So the originally what the model of a neuron was extremely simple. It takes uh, essentially a linear weighted sum of its inputs. It takes each input, multiplies by weights, multiplies it by weight, adds it all up, and then sends an output. Right? And that's the model that's used in today's deep learning systems. But if you look at a real uh, biological neuron, they're vastly more complicated than that. Um, there's no neuroscientist today that will tell you that they fully understand what a neuron actually does. Um, it's extremely nonlinear. Uh, in the way it works. Um, mm. And neurons today have these things called dendrites. So the inputs come in uh, to the neuron. Um, there's a bunch of inputs that are very close to the cell body. And those act in this kind of linear way that I just described. But that's actually only about 5% of the inputs coming into a neuron. So 95% of the inputs don't work in the way that today's deep learning neurons work. And what happens, we think happens is that the neuron makes thousands of connections to other things around uh, other neurons around it. Um, it's trying to detect context and it's processing its 
output in the context of what's going on. Uh, so when when it's input when it has input coming in, it knows the particular context it's in, and it uses that to decide what the output should be. So it's a very contextual system, and and based on what is you know what the particular context is, what's going on around us, we can kind of uh, as you know we can tune our input. Uh, and tune our outputs and tune what we say very much based on the context of what we say. And that happens down at the very fundamental neuron level. Mm. And this is a very important property that deep learning systems don't really take take advantage of today uh, that they could. It's so wild because it brings in a lot of philosophy as well about like consciousness and unconsciousness, like what part of me, the part that we're speaking together, it's almost like a little bit of an illusion because it, it fe I feel like I'm conscious, but then there's so many things undergoing that that are just happening automatically that I'm not even aware yeah. of, that I, I can't be aware of, that I literally can't be aware of, like the the neurons in my brain or the sensors in my hand, like each individual sensor, it's all a picture in my brain that's being created um, based on all of the all of everything I've learned and all of this different stuff. Um, so there's a lot there. And, and exactly so, all of that stuff that you've learned, everything you've learned is, is impacting what you're saying at this point in time to me. And even what I said a few minutes ago, is probably impacting us in our conversation, right? Yeah, interesting. And that brings up to mind, like just like how many things I had to learn in order to have this conversation. Um, not only like about, you know, maybe neuroscience to just give me a little bit of a background to understand it, but also just like how to speak uh, and like how to all the rules that took me years and years before I was even conscious to understand like what, how to even speak to another human being and like all those different things. It's all, it's all at play all the time. Uh, and, uh, and it's so much more complex, but then there's like this simplifying thing that it may be oversimplifying where, where like our brains oversimplify things so that we can understand them. Right. Cause that's like, that's one of the difficulties about reality is the reality seems so combinatorial explosive that there's no way that we can really understand anything. Like even like this a pen or, or, or a, a bottle, it's like those things themselves are way out of our ability to understand. Do you have anything to say on that, about that simplification part of the brain? Yeah, uh, you know, and that's ties to how we can learn continuously as well. We have to simplify things and we're focused on a particular context and a particular thread that we're discussing right now. And that that allows us to also learn just in the context of that uh, of that, you know, more simplified scenario. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we know about penguins in Australia and, you know, how to ride a bike and all sorts of stuff. But that doesn't that's not relevant right now. We can just, you know, narrow ourselves to the particular thing that's relevant and and learn in, in that context. You know, you also talked about, you know, how much you've learned over the years. Uh, that's kind of another big difference, actually, uh, is just how we learn, you know, as you know, when we're babies and, and you know, crawling around and looking around, we don't speak. Uh, we don't know language yet, but we're still learning tremendous amounts about the structure of the world by moving around, by making mistakes. Um, and so, you know, humans are inherently these sensory motor learning systems. <laughs> you know, we have to move, we have to explore the world. Um, you know, we have to make mistakes and we have to try things and in our physical world. And, and that helps us build up a very sort of structured, almost like a 3D model of how the world is mm. uh, and, how, you know, how objects are. And, and that's, something that deep learning systems have no clue of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no there's, there's one, there's one model I've heard about Jan LeCun, Jan LeCun who, who's running the, the AI at, at, uh, um, at Facebook at Meta. He is talking about a, the world model that is going to try to do exactly that. That way you just said of essentially like how to build that 3d model through all the sensory stuff. Have you heard of this model? Do you know anything about it? Yeah, so they, they're uh, they're getting serious about that. It's something we've been talking about for over a decade, actually. And and the fact that in order to build truly intelligent systems, you have to uh, have systems that have a fundamental world model um, and have to move around in the world. Um, you know, if if you know, if for humans, for example, if I you know if I show you a new car or a new coffee mug or a new something that you haven't seen before, you can learn it instantly. Uh, you don't have to see, you know, thousands of images of every new car. You don't have to see it at night. You don't have to see it, you know, um, in the rain and and so on. You you have a sense of how the world works. You see one image, you immediately have a three D model of it, and you can imagine what it would look like in the snow or at night, and you can you can recognize it just fine. Whereas deep learning systems, you have to see tons and tons and tons of examples of everything, again because it's a statistical system. 
And so we, we think, you know, understanding fundamentally how the world works uh, by moving around, by interacting with it is an absolutely critical piece of, of uh, building up a, a true model of the world. It's so interesting because then essentially what you're going to have to do is somehow then replicate that efficiency that the brain has to do that magical process, but within these 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 machine learning algorithms, and that seems like a massive job because like if somebody that seems like there's such an what you said that the that you know the twenty twenty watts I think you said yeah twenty watts in the yeah. brain versus a city worth of power uh, like the incentive that everybody must be feeling as to how to actually do that in a way that the brain works in just a very very efficient way. Like how do you, how are you going to do that? Yeah, so um, you know the way we're going about it is understanding kind of at an algorithmic level what's going on in the brain, and then seeing how we can take that and apply that to uh, you know today's deep learning systems. And we're going about it incrementally. We're making um, because today's deep learning systems, with all the problems we've talked about, still work incredibly well. Right there, it's amazing what what they can do today. So you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So we can take uh, today's systems and start incorporating uh, some of those principles into um, into today's AI systems and incrementally get it closer and closer to how the how the brain works. Um, so one example that we publish about is you know again we talked about these dendrites. So you can actually take the notion of dendrites and add it to today's neuron model and then get these systems to operate incredibly efficiently uh, and also to learn continuously um, in, you know, in, a, in a way that's a lot closer to the way humans learn. Fascinating. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, so I think we, we have to, it, there are some significant obstacles, I think. Um, it is, you know, you have the field of neuroscience and you have the field of AI and they use very, very different jargon, very different language. Uh, I think it's really important that the disciplines really start to uh, communicate a lot more and talk to each other. Um, you know, the way neuroscientists talk is completely foreign to the way uh, to an AI scientist. Um, and so there needs to be, you know, a, more of a two-way communication that, than there is today. So um, you're so saying you're proposing an ecumenical council like the Council of Mesida, <laughs> but, uh, but, for, uh, but for neuroscientists and AI. Is, are there any conferences like that? Feels like there should be conferences for that. Yeah, there are a couple of conferences in what's called computational neuroscience, mm -hmm. and you know, primarily that uh, you know takes computational techniques and tries to apply them to understand neuroscience experiments better. There's very little going the other way, where you're taking neuroscience experiments and trying to actually improve AI, and that's the direction I think we need to we need to head towards. And that's that's crazy. So, and I imagine you guys aren't the only ones doing this. I'm sure there's there's other people. You said there's not there's not a whole lot of people who are doing that. Uh, it sounds fascinating yeah. that that basically the whole project was given up. Well, when did the when did when was that project given up? Basically, the, so let me just recount what you said. You said 1940s was the first time where the neuron model, and the 1980s was when back propagation happened. Uh, and so that seems like that was the last real time that you know, from my limited understanding, that was the last real time that neuroscience had an effect on AI. Is that true? When did and if if so? Yeah, when I would. I would say in the 90s there was also the convolutional. Mm -hmm. network so mm -hmm. you know taking uh what hubel and weasel did and and incorporating that into into ai but it's sort of in the late 90s is when gpu started to get more and more powerful and that's where the divergence happened um, it became easier and easier to just throw lots of data at it and build bigger models um and get uh you know you get more and more accurate on on any data set uh, so i think that's when uh there was a little bit of a of a split that's super fascinating um, and so now you're trying to propose to come back to it uh, and essentially like start to bring some of these lessons and apply them to the the, the influence of AI. Um, how are you guys doing it? If you if you want to talk about your company and like what your company is doing specifically, are you guys just doing research? Or are you starting to put stuff in production? Like what what are you doing there? Yeah. So yeah, we were founded back in 2005. So it's been a it's been a long journey. <laughs> it's been oh. 18 years so far. So a good part of the first. Uh, you know, I would say 80% of our life, we were doing a lot of research. So it was uh, just for context, Numento was founded by Jeff Hawkins and Donna Dubinsky. So Jeff was, uh, you know, the co-founder of Palm and Handspring hmm. um, and uh, did a lot of stuff, obviously, in mobile computing and making that happen. But his real passion was actually in neuroscience. So mm -hmm. he founded Numento with the idea of trying to deeply understand neuroscience um, and then apply that to AI systems. 
So the first 15 years or so, we were just, just doing research. Um, uh, we were talking to neuroscientists, we we're going to neuroscience conferences, we published a lot of peer reviewed papers in, in neuroscience journals. Uh, Jeff just published uh, his book uh, called A Thousand Brains Theory of Intelligence uh, mm. a couple of years ago. Uh, so that was sort of encapsulates a lot of what we've learned from the neuroscience into a book. I think it was one of Bill Gates top five books of uh, 2021, wow. something so it's, it's getting a fair amount of uh, attention. Um, but a couple of years ago, we sort of decided that, you know, we've learned enough from the neuroscience to have a pretty good idea, not a, not a, not a fully fleshed out idea, but a pretty good idea of the main principles that are underlying intelligence uh, in humans. And so it's, and we're kind of at the edge of what, where neuroscience is uh, at this point. And it's, we felt it was now was the time to kind of pivot and transition to the second part of our mission, which was to try to apply the neuroscience stuff uh, to AI. And cool. so for the last uh, year or two, we've been really focused on that, trying to see, okay, where can we first, where, where are the first places we can apply, uh, you know, to AI and, and, you know, what is the roadmap and where can we go uh, from here? And can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So the way we see it, there's sort of three fundamental pillars that from neuroscience that we want to incorporate into AI. Uh, the first is uh, just deals with the efficiency issues. So there are uh, concepts such as uh, sparsity um, in the brain, which is essentially the, the brain is very, very uh, parsimonious in how it chooses which neurons to become active, which connections to make. Um, whereas in deep learning systems, you know, if you have, let's say a, a thousand neurons connecting to another thousand neurons, you'll have each neuron will connect to every other neuron. So you'll have a million connections. In the brain, um, you'll only have a few thousand connections. It's be extremely sparse. Interesting. Um, and, and that's, that's, are, that's shifting all the time, right? Like, like It's shifting all the time, yeah. yeah. Well, that's another thing, you know, when we do, <laughs> there's so many layers here, but when we think about learning, the brain learns by making connections and getting rid of connections. So one fact you may not know is that something like 30% of the connections in, in your brain that are there today will not be there a week from now. And there'll be a new 30%. But that so, doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that 30% of my memories, although that probably does apply. Well, I, I know that the exponential for, forgetting curve that about 90% of everything that I'm going to learn is going to be gone. I think it's within four days, five days or something like that. Uh, but that's that's a different. There's a difference between neurons and memories, though, too, right? You're yeah, just yeah, that's... your connections of those things, and can, can they be re-sparked together? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is. I think that's exactly right. It's not the thirty percent. You know, there's huge turnover in the connections, but what's happening is our brain is constantly trying to form uh, connections, constantly trying to form memories. But most of what we hear and see are are not going to be important you know, most of the things. And so it, it won't retain that. It's going to retain the things that are important, the memories that are important, uh, or the memories that it sees over and over again. Those are the, uh, you know, items it's going to remember. You know, you, you know, I probably, I don't remember, you know, what I had for breakfast three weeks ago. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, that wasn't important, right? But I, I remember what, you know, some of the things I was doing with my kids three weeks ago. Right. So that was important. So those are there. So the 30% is, is our brain constantly trying to learn new things. That's what's going on. Interesting. Um, and, and it only keeps the small percentage that's actually relevant. Yeah. Um, so then we got, the, yeah, the, we got sparsity as a part of efficiency issues to, for applying yes. this to, to AI. Uh, and then is there anything else within the efficiency issues? If not, what are the other couple of pillars? Yeah. So, um, you know, efficiency is the main pillar we're focused on initially, because that's where, uh, you know, there's a there, there's a ton of commercial potential, I think, and we can get to that uh, if you want. Mm -hmm. The second pillar is the neuron model, uh, really understanding the complexities of how a neuron operates and how we can incorporate that into deep learning. And that's going to allow us to do this contextual processing, uh, it will allow us to learn continuously, because um, the way the brain, one of the tricks to learning continuously is that you only learn in the particular context that you're in. You don't have to update everything. You only update a very narrow sliver uh, of your memories. Um, and so, it, you know, the fundamental learning algorithm that's used is very tied to the neuron model. So instead of back propagation, 
um, which is, so the way backpropagation works, it's a very global phenomenon. You send in an, an input, it goes all the way through the network. And then at the very top of the network, some corrections are made and it flows all the way back. It propagates wow. back. Wow. That's not how the brain works. Uh, the brain learns, every neuron is learning completely independently of the other neurons. Um, they're all connected, uh, but every neuron is just seeing its inputs and outputs and making adjustments internally. It's a very local process. It's not a global process. It's a local asynchronous process. But to do that well, you have to understand the neuron model itself and how it's learning. So I think the second pillar is huge. It's, it's just understanding you know, the complexity of a neuron, how it enables continuous learning and changing the very fundamental learning algorithm itself. Mm. Um, the third pillar is actually something we haven't really talked about yet which is um, a fascinating discovery that was made in neuroscience uh, in the 70s by Vernon Mountcastle, which is that there's a common circuit underlying all of intelligence. And what I mean by that is, um, if you look at the brain, there's about a hundred, uh, a circuit that comprises about 100,000 neurons that has a very particular connectivity pattern. And that pattern is replicated hundreds of thousands of times in your brain. And your visual system, your auditory system, your language system, your system for high level thought, all of those parts of the brain use that exact same pattern. Right? There are small differences, but for the most part, that same canonical structure is used everywhere. Uh, it's not a simple structure, it's somewhat complex, it's 100,000 neurons, but it's not super complex. Huh. Uh, so the third pillar is taking that microcircuit, you know, what's called a cortical column ah. uh, and enabling, you know, understanding how that works, building artificial cortical columns, and then replicating that thousands of times. That's uh, so interesting. Yeah. So that's the, that may be the key to the efficiency part. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, so the cortical column, um, that, so for, you know, when I was doing my deep dive into neuroscience, like I would, I would memorize it according to the Wikipedia version of, of, uh, of the brain, which is, you know, you have the amygdala and you have the, the, all these different things. And you kind of think of them as separate parts, but yeah. what you're saying is that there's a cortical column that runs through all of these different parts of the brain. Okay. So there's what, everything I'm saying is restricted to one part of the brain, which is oh. called the neocortex. Oh, interesting. Uh, so the neocortex, so, so there are, you're exactly right. There's all of these different parts of the brain, you know, hippocampus, thalamus, amygdala, there's all these, um, you know, superior colliculus, there's uh, the brainstem, there's all sorts of different areas, but the neocortex is the largest part of our human brains. And that's really where intelligent function happens. Mm. And so everything I'm saying uh, today is, is really about the neocortex. That's, mm -hmm. we, we really need to understand the neocortex and how that works if we're gonna build uh, intelligent systems. Well then, so, and I know that there's been a lot of like controversy about the three-part brain uh, and that, you know, it's like the reptilian brain, it's probably not a very good way to say it. Is there anything from those parts of the brain, like our deep emotions um, that is applicable to, to this? Yeah, so, you know, they're, they're sometimes called subcortical structures because they're kind of below, mm. quote unquote, below the neocortex and they support the neocortex in, in, in humans. So, you know, a lot of our motor functions are, you know, things like walking are repetitive uh, things, you know, walking, sleeping, breathing, um, you know, basic actions and stuff like that are, are done subcortically. And the neocortex is like this orchestrator that sort of sends in high level commands to these subcortical uh, systems. So, you know, understanding how these systems interplay is, is important. Um, uh, the, there are some other parts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's but, some but other we're parts. Not gonna, we're brain. not going to remember. We're not going to teach the, well, we are, well, some people are teaching the robots how to walk and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of that's done in the subcortical systems. So our spinal cord and the brainstem and other areas are really good at doing the, the fine grain motor. Things. So, you know, walking on two legs and balancing and not falling over is really important. Um, but that's not what the neocortex uh, does. For our, for, our, uh, for our LLM type of usages, we're, we're really focused on the, the neocortex level of intelligence, which is like, like philosophy, logic, all those different things. Whereas like exactly. for, ro for robotics that they're, tr they're training the robots, the, that other stuff is important. 
I guess that brings to mind because I've been seeing some sort of demos where they are actually using the LLM to incorporate that inside the robotics training programs as well. Do you know, if, is that a wholly completely different set of AI and machine learning is how to teach robots how to move and, and model and everything like that? Yeah, they've been fairly distinct um, and they are starting to become more interdisciplinary as well. Robotics for a while has has been just understanding the low level motor piece, the physics of it. And, and wow. you know, recently more and more learning is being applied uh, applied to that as well. But in the in the brain, the neocortex sort of acts as the orchestrator and will will you know at a high level you know it's fine if you know how to walk but where should you walk right and and you know if i want lunch uh if i want my lunch today what should i do you know uh walk to the fridge open it up look see if there's food if there isn't food go to a restaurant and you know order food so all of that stuff is done by the neocortex but um the low level uh actions are are done subcortically fascinating uh, so let's go back to the efficiency piece. Uh, the efficiency piece, it sounds like that's the one where the most business applications are. Um, how are you like training it? Is it similar to training the LLMs? Like, is it reinforcement uh, through human feedback? Is there is there a human feedback element of it? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. What we figured out is that we can actually apply some of these concepts of efficiency directly to today's LLMs, to today's oh. large language models, including GPT models, oh. without kind of changing the overall high level paradigm. Hmm. So we're changing the underlying structure of these networks, um, you know, incorporating notions like sparsity and a little bit on dendrites and things like that to make these systems 10 to 100 times more power efficient and more computationally efficient. But the overall training regime and the structure and the inputs and outputs and that stays the same. Yeah. So you can still use the you know reinforcement learning with human feedback. Uh, you can use today's um, you know code repositories like Hugging Face and today's data sets and um, you know even today's structures like uh, GPT models. But we're changing the internal structures of it, mm -hmm. um, and that's important because we need to one improve the efficiencies dramatically. But at the same time, if businesses are going to use it, they can't change everything in their in their system this allows the system you know our stuff to kind of slot in um and there's it's still a paradigm that they're kind of familiar with and know mm -hmm. how to work with mm -hmm. that's really cool uh uh what, what's the latest on that it's very very interesting like are you guys working with any particular people or or to, to integrate or are you kind of like have you do you guys have a github uh that you that you've created so people can actually start to implement some of this stuff yeah, we are working with a few customers uh, today, and the idea is we we're going to do a product launch a little bit later this year, uh, where we'll sort of officially announce uh, everything. Uh, but we're working with uh, customers today to make their uh, deployments um, of large language models significantly more efficient. Cool. And one of the kind of interesting things uh, that's happened is that it turns out our stuff works really well on CPUs, uh, particularly uh, on modern CPUs. Uh, which is which ends up being an amazing stroke of luck because we can make these systems more efficient on CPUs than you can on GPUs. Wow. Well, if well if you know anything about, yes. if you've heard some of the news on AI, GPUs just are not available today. Yep. Yep. Um, there's there's at least a, like a one year waiting list if you want to get GPUs, and so we're hoping this is sort of the perfect storm for us. Yeah. Um, we can make our stuff run really well on CPUs. Um, you know, businesses can't get GPUs today. So if they want to do AI, they either have to wait or they can work with us. Uh, they're the, in, you know, 99% of the deep learning world is really focused on GPUs. We're among the only companies that are really focused on CPUs uh, per se. Um, it's a total nightmare right now. It's a total nightmare to get a GPU. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it reminds me of the crypto thing. I think it was a few years ago when crypto shot up the, the, uh, was it GPUs or it was a, was it a particular, I think it was GPUs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the crypto crashed and then AI went again and got the GPUs. <laughs> again. Um, well, that's really cool. I think, uh, uh, if you're interested, people at my company would be very interested in hearing more about that. Cause we're doing a lot okay. of, uh, we're a lot, we're doing a lot of AI implementation, um, yeah. and, and helping, helping companies figure this out. So. Um, I would, yeah, I think anyone kind of using LLMs and trying to deploy these large language models within their business, um, you know, it's very, the world, the market is very confusing. Yes. Um, it's very kind of hard to navigate it. But as soon as you start navigating, as soon as you start implementing, you quickly realize how 
costly these things are, how cumbersome it is, how important it is to think about the compute uh, portions of it. And so that's the area that we're focused on, really making it easy for folks to kind of companies to realize the benefits of large language models, um, you know, on CPUs. That's so cool. So how did you get involved with Numentai? If it was founded by um, uh, Jeff and, uh, and Donna Dubinsky. Yeah. yeah. How did you get involved? Yes. So I met with them uh, in 2005. So I've been here since the beginning. So it's uh, the last 18 years. Um, my background, I did a lot of, um, I was a computer, I am a computer scientist at heart, um, but I was very interested in neuroscience back in the early 90s. And so I did a lot in, in neuroscience there but couldn't really see how to take that into commercial applications. So after my PhD, I switched to doing research in machine learning and doing a couple of startups. But then when I heard about Numenta being formed, it was like, oh, this is perfect. Now I can take my passion for neuroscience and see how we can apply it to AI. I think we all thought it would happen quicker than it actually did. None of us thought it would take 18 years, but uh, here we are. Um, it's, a it's wild. And it's just yeah. crazy that like I've, I was reading, somebody had mentioned that something like a huge percentage of the, the, the real fundamental inventions that have changed our world in the last hundred years were basically invented from 1870 to 1890. Um, <laughs> and that, uh, and that they, those first, those first initial things all happened within that, in the, within that 20 period. And I actually checked it against ChatGPT, and it is, it is true for a lot of those things. Like they were the first theorized in that, in that time period. Um, oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe it's the same here because a lot of the neuroscience discoveries we're talking about happened, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And um, a tremendous amount has happened in neuroscience there and that, that people don't know about in, in AI at all. Interesting. Okay. So a uh, very unique approach to AI. Um, uh, what is your guys' mission? Well, I guess we've been talking about that a lot, about like you know, with these three pillars, establishing these three mm -hmm. pillars, and the, the first is efficiency. So we've covered a bunch of that. But if you have anything else to say on that, let me know. Yeah, it's really to understand, you know, really take learnings from neuroscience and apply them to AI. We think today's AI is very brute force. Um, they're not truly intelligent in the way we, we think humans can, are intelligent. And we think to get to the next level over the next five to 10 years, we have to incorporate some of these principles that we've learned from neuroscience. They're, they're pretty fundamental principles um, uh, that, that need to be incorporated in. Uh, and without that, we're not going to get to truly intelligent systems. At least that's, that's what we believe. Okay. So let's talk about that. What, what is a truly intelligent system? Yeah, very good, <laughs> good question. So um, if you're familiar with the Turing test, um, which is, you know, you, you put a computer or a person behind the wall and you're sending it text back and forth and you try to decide, okay, is it a person or a computer on the other side? And if you cannot tell, then, then that system must be intelligent. So we don't think that's really the, the true test of intelligence. You know, if anything, you know, ChatGPT can probably pass the Turing test today, right? But I don't think people think, you know, uh, ChatGPT is truly intelligent. Um, I, I think to be truly intelligent, you have to be able to deal with very, very new things. Mm. Um, and you have to be able to learn and reason about stuff, you know, using your world knowledge, the model of the world that we talked about earlier, uh, to be able to handle completely new scenarios and, and think your way through that. Um, language is actually not critical for intelligence, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, and you can think about, imagine a child who's grown up you know, in, you know, you know, in a forest somewhere, um, you know, away from civilization, doesn't know any language. Um, that 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 human can still be incredibly intelligent in how it navigates the world and how it solves problems and and deals with things and and so on. So, I think language is a little bit of a red herring. Uh, mm -hmm. People tend to use language and these sort of abstract puzzles to try to uh, decide whether something is intelligent. It's more about Okay, can you take what you've learned, um, apply them to new things, learn in that process, and continue to evolve your knowledge? I think that's really the key to intelligence. Yeah. Um, and then, but what, where does that fit in? Because we have this intelligence, and we also have this consciousness, and you know, I think we understand a lot more about what intelligence is, and we understand very little what consciousness is, and how to make it, and, and do all these things. What's the relationship between intelligence and consciousness? And do you think that these machines like 
and there's a great quote that somebody on my podcast once said is just like, um, can we make a machine think? Well, can we make a submarine swim? Um, you know, it's like those two different, like the submarine's not swimming, it's doing something in the water, but like, can a machine think? So what is this, what is this relationship between consciousness and intelligence in your opinion? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have a conscious percept of what the current, you know, what we're, uh, perceiving at this point in time, um, you know, that we think is embodied in the activity of neurons uh, at any point in time. Um, it's, uh, you know, Jeff actually talks about that in his brain. There's a sort of a particular algorithmic thing we think is going on to reach sort of a common, um, uh, you know, percept of what we think is happening at this particular point in time, given the information that's coming in. Um, and that, but to arrive at that, you need to have these other things that we talked about, you know, we, we need to have a, a model of the world and a structured understanding of the world. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to precisely define consciousness. It's really hard to sort of exactly answer that. I don't think today's chat GPT is at all conscious. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's a mathematical function that gets an input and gives an output. And then it's just sitting there. It's not, it doesn't have any agency of its own. Yeah, it's you give it input and you get an output. If you give it the exact same input, it's going to give you the exact same output, right? Um, and so um, it's not really conscious in the way we uh, we would define consciousness. Uh, but but you know it's you know we we need something that has agency. We need something that's interacting with the world. Um, and we need something that's learning continuously. I think those are, are critical pieces of, of intelligence. Have you heard of these autonomous agents? It's uh, very interesting that people, you know, there, there's the uh, baby AGI. Uh, there's a couple others that, are, that have essentially tried to create autonomous agents that if you give them a task, they'll break that task down into little parts and then go one by one, complete them. Uh, but then it also, it also seems like that probably isn't conscious either. It's just following a script. Uh, and right. that, um, and that it can come up with new scripts based on uh, on all of the world's knowledge that has been programmed on, uh, but it's kind of like a, an illusion or something like that. Um, and but like autonomy is a really interesting thing because what does that mean to be autonomous? And that you, then this brings in the philosophy, a lot of neuroscience philosophy as well, is just that that we don't have free will, that we're basically programmed beings that that are essentially just just doing what our conditioning is based off of and, and our genetic conditioning or our cultural conditioning and we're just we're just following that um and uh so autonomy is a really interesting thing because it's like uh i agree with you that the, the question itself is extremely hard to hard to hard to ask is like well, i guess the next question would be what is the relationship bet between consciousness and autonomy um and intelligence and all those things but as we've been discussing, there isn't really a, like a strong, like understanding of what consciousness is. So if we don't really understand it, how the hell are we going yeah. <laughs> to tie something to it? Yeah, exactly. How do you even answer the question? You know, yeah. kind of pose the question. Um, you know, I do think autonomy and agency is a critical piece of it. I think that is a step in the right direction. I think these systems uh, need to be embodied in some sort of a world, whether it's a virtual world or a physical mm -hmm. world. Uh, you have to navigate and be able to learn about that. So I think that is a, a critical piece of it. Um, I do think, you know, as a computer scientist, fundamentally, I don't think there's any difference between humans and computers. At the end of the day, we are still machines. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different substrate. We're not made out of transistors and semiconductors. We're made out of biological neurons and so on. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it, it can be understood from a computer science, science standpoint. You can understand the algorithm of the brain, the data structures and the architecture of the brain, and then you should be able to implement that. Um, I don't think there's anything fundamental about humans that cannot be captured by algorithms at the end of the day. Interesting. Um, uh, so let's take it back to these neurons and what the neurons do. Uh, there's a particular part of the brain that I got really interested in a few years ago called glia. Uh, are in your model, and for those listeners who I don't know, I'm probably going to butcher it, but glia are like these supportive things that are surrounding the network that are providing a structure for them that are like feeding them that are uh, mm -hmm. helping them communicate in some ways. Do you know anything about glia and are is this is that knowledge being incorporated into this at all? Yeah, so uh, this is a, a relatively new branch of neuroscience in terms of really understanding in detail glia sometimes called astrocytes uh, as well. These are kind of supporting cells that 
um, are are making it sort of doing a lot of uh, creating the environment such that neurons can actually work efficiently. So taking care of um, you, you know the metabolic uh, state of the neuron, uh, making sure the chemicals and everything are in balance. Um, it's not clear yet whether they're really fundamental or whether they're just a supporting such, uh, set of things. So I think that's still an open question in, in neuroscience. Mm. Do we really, are they fundamentally impacting the algorithm itself? Mm. Um, is it a fundamental portion of the algorithms? There's something else like that, which is called neuromodulators, oh. uh, which is these additional sort of chemicals that come in and out of our different parts of our brain. So, um, you know, uh, neuromodulators like um, uh, like dopamine and serotonin and, and others. And that is now pretty clear. That is a that is an incredibly important part of how the brain functions. And is it, um, is it fundamental? It's pretty fundamental. So okay. dopamine, for example, deals a lot with reward. And, you know, we talked about agency and, uh, you know, that implies having goals. But how do you, how do you actually reach your goals? Um, how do you uh, learn when you, whether you reach your goals or not? Um, you know, how are you motivated to do things? Those are, dopamine is a pretty critical component of that. And to actually make systems have agency, you have to have the analog of neuromodulators. You don't have to actually inject the chemicals into the computer, but you need to have the analog of that from an algorithmic standpoint. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting because uh, from my understanding, a neuron is more electric, electrical activity. uh, and, And then you have these neuromodulators, which are chemical. And so then you've replicated what the chemical does inside. It will have you guys done that? Have you started to do that? Is that part of your model is creating yeah, the, yeah. the neuromodulators? So we, we are incorporating uh, some of that. That's an, a pretty exciting area of neuroscience. We're learning more about uh, more about that pretty rapidly. Uh-huh. And that's it's pretty clear now that that's a really critical part of, of intelligent function. Okay. And now I'm going to ask maybe a left, uh, left uh, I can't remember the term, but uh, feel out of left field. Um, uh, so, it, you know, there's, I've read that there's a new system or new discipline within academia called quantum biology. Um, and that mm-hmm. it's very new. It's very, uh, it's very like, nobody knows what's, what's going on. Uh, but we <laughs> suspect that there is some sort of quantum mechanics inside of biological systems. Um, do you know anything about this? Is this, it, it feels very, very experimental, but like, is there, uh, is there anything that's influencing you on this in terms of the quantum level? Yeah, um, so I don't know too much about quantum uh, biology per se, but um, there is one aspect of quantum physics that that does play into um, you know our theories, and that's the idea of superposition, mm-hmm. the idea that you can have many many different uh, quantities kind of superimpose one on top of the other um, without without you know messing anything up, and we do think that the brain fundamentally and there's algorithmic re, you know uh, explanation for this that we can actually remember multiple things and deal with multiple things simultaneously um, uh, and deal with ambiguity simultaneously. So if you're trying to, you know, imagine you stick your hand in some dark box and you're trying to figure out what's there and you have hypotheses about what's there. You can actually have dozens or hundreds of hypotheses simultaneously. You're not conscious of them, but you can actually have them invoked uh, simultaneously. And then as you, as you feel more and more, you quickly narrow that down until you say, oh yeah, that's a coffee mug or that's a cell phone. Uh, or that's So the idea of superposition, this is not in deep learning uh, representations, but that's a very critical way that we sort of repre- can represent lots of different quantities simultaneously and have hypotheses and narrow things down as we get more and more information. So you're saying is that in in our brains we have all these different options for what what these things could potentially be that we're mapping them out and then we finally come to one and then all of those disappear basically and that's all happening at below the level of conscious awareness. Exactly, and at the point at which you are sure of what it is or or your current thing, we think that may be where consciousness can come in. Um, you know, so you don't have. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, so so the. Consciousness could be sort of like your best guess of what's going on at this point in time. Uh, and and w- at the same time, there's all of these other hypotheses that are not yet conscious, but that's kind of your best guess of what's happening. That could be one one definition of consciousness. 
And does that have anything to do with predictive processing? The guy, Carl, what's his name? Carl, Carl Friston. Yeah, Carl Friston. Yeah. Is that is that based off of what he talks about? Yeah. So prediction is a very key piece of what the brain is doing. So uh, yeah, these hypotheses, you can think of them as predictions, uh, but you don't have one prediction. You might have a hundred predictions. Mm. Uh, and then now when you sense, uh, you get another new data point, now your hundred predictions are narrowed down to maybe 10. You get another data point. Now you know, okay, now it's exactly this. So you're, you're always in, uh, having predictions of what might happen next and taking actions to kind of resolve that ambiguity down to, uh, you know, so you actually understand what it is. Totally fascinating. Okay, well, we got about five minutes left. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's quite a lot, I guess. Um, you know, I, th I think today's world is, uh, AI is, is incredibly exciting and interesting. You know, what ChatGPT has done is that now everyone, like even my mom is asking me about AI, <laughs> you know, so everyone is aware of this. Um, it is a very confusing time we're in right now. There's all sorts of claims that are being made. Um, and, you know, certainly as we think about businesses and how businesses uh, should incorporate AI, there's a, there's a, quite a bit of, um, you know, handholding that they still need. Um, and so, um, you know, I think organizations are kind of scrambling, trying to understand what to do. And as they try to uh, deploy AI systems, they quickly realize, okay, how complicated it actually is. Um, so I think it's a tremendously exciting time. Uh, I don't think we're at the end. A lot of people think, okay, we're kind of done. AGI is there and, and AI systems are there. I think we're just at the beginning. Uh, at this point, there's a huge, uh, a lot of potential. And, and certainly, you know, our opinion is uh, you have to incorporate, you know, neuroscience principles, um, mm -hmm. like what we've talked about to, to really uh, have AI uh, become truly powerful and, and general purpose. Mm, that's super interesting. So um, what are there any obstacles you're facing? Anything you're looking for? Any people you want to hire that you can kind of like talk to right now uh, with Numenta? Yeah, we're, um, you know, we're, we're growing, um, we're, uh, you know, uh, interested in, 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 you know, securing large investment to really grow the team. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of potential. Um, at the same time, you know, we're an 18 year old company, we're being very deliberate in how we do. Uh, we think it's really important to focus on the fundamentals, uh, not just be, not just have the tail wagging the dog as, as it were. Um, and so, you know, nothing specific holding us back. It's just, you know, there's a lot going on and just uh, staying up to date uh, with everything that's going on is, is hard even for us, uh, but we're making a lot of progress. Uh, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a fun conversation. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.